It's great to be with you this morning. I apologize if my voice is a little weak. I have been fighting uh, a cold or um, what my my, my wife would call the man flu for the past couple weeks. Um, I told first service that I would... um, I would take it easy on them, so I could have voice to yell at you. Um, but uh, I'll, pro- I'll, I'll try and take it easy on you, too. Although I have been pumping the fluids, so I don't know if you've ever seen this, but if I have to run out in the middle of the sermon to do like a potty break, um, someone just come up and just take it, take it from here, all right? Uh, the spirit will just take over at that point. Uh, my family's been uh, working out. We're stumbling through it, but we're, pract- we're trying to practice Sabbath together. This is new for us. Um, but one day a week, we take 24 hours, and uh, we set it aside uh, for unique purposes. And uh, in that time, we, we intentionally try to stop the normal uh, pace of whatever our work days look like, whatever the other six days work like, look like. Um, we try to rest. So oftentimes, that means uh, taking naps, glorious naps. Um, but we also try and rest emotionally and mentally as well and spiritually, um, as we just kind of calm ourselves from all the, everything that needs to get done in nor- normal day-to-day life, um, we want to try and delight. So often that means for us starting with a home-cooked meal or one of our favorite takeout places and just enjoying a dinner together in no rush to move on from the table. Most other nights of the week are not like that. Um, and then we also want to set aside that time to worship. And so we often start our Sabbath in the evening with kind of a Sabbath liturgy around the dinner table that leads us to worship of God. And then we try and steal little moments uh, throughout the next day uh, to just be with Jesus individually or together as a family. And um, being in ministry, um, uh, uh, this, has to, this has to flex a lot. A lot of my schedule is just dependent on what the needs are of other people. And this particular week, uh, I had a wedding I had to officiate in Knoxville. It was a Friday night wedding, actually. So we drove over a Thursday afternoon, uh, to do the rehearsal uh, that e- early that evening, and then we decided we would Sabbath from Thursday evening into Friday up until I had to leave for the wedding. So that was great. We did the rehearsal, went home that evening, put the babies to bed, kicked back, relaxed, watched some Thursday night football that night. Um, it, it was wonderful. The next day we got up, spent some time with old friends. We, had, we actually hadn't seen them since college. Um, spent some time with some friends, um, just had a great breakfast with them, went back to the house, put our kids down, and then I just got to read in the quiet and sit in the sunroom uh, for the rest of that day. It was glorious. It was blissful. However, um, I, had to, I had a wedding to do that night, right? So I had gotten ready, given myself a little bit of time uh, to get dressed and head out, and I went to go put my shoes on and realized I had left my dress shoes in Johnson City. And so I tried a few different pairs of shoes on. I was like, do these work? babe, do these work? Will these work? She's like, no. <laughs> uh, so uh, we create a quick little plan, uh, and I'm like, all right, uh, you're the Alfred to my Batman. I'm going to hop in my Batmobile, which looks like a 2005 Honda Odyssey with almost 300,000 miles on it, and I gun it out of the driveway. She finds me a Walmart, sends it to me, so I hit it in my GPS. But on the way there, I remember, okay, I, I just had breakfast with this good buddy of mine. Let me see if he has shoes. So I call him on my drive. He says, yeah, I got a few shoes. Come over, try them on. He's about 10 minutes from the wedding venue. So, so it's going to work out, okay? So I uh, get off the phone with him. I talk to text my wife because I was driving on the record. Uh, uh, say, hey, I, got, I think I got shoes figured out. She calls me, and she's like, you left your jacket on the closet door. <laughs> so at this point, the officiant of the wedding, the preacher's going to show up with no shoes and no jacket. Um, 
Sorry to the couple who spent all this money on photography that I'm going to be in sneakers. Um, well, you know, I'll cut the tension. It ends up working out. I got, my buddy actually had a jacket, although he's three inches taller than me and probably 30 pounds lighter, so he's kind of a beanpole, and I could not button the jacket. So even though I couldn't button the jacket, the wedding worked out, uh, and actually it, it provided a nice little fun story to kind of relieve the groom's nerves as we were walking up to the altar. Um, the moral of that story, right, is that our Sabbath rest got quickly interrupted by just the chaos and mess of life. And that's all too true, right? We all have stories, and a lot of, time, a lot of them are funny like that. Or you look back, and it, you know, it was crazy in the time, but you look back on it, it gives you a good laugh. Maybe you planned a vacation, and one or, or all of the family, one family member of all the family got sick on the vacation, and you spent the whole time in the hotel, or, or maybe your luggage got lost on your way there, and you had to make do with like only the clothes on your back, just flipping them inside out every day of the trip, or... Uh, you know, maybe uh, you show up, uh, you fly into Seattle, and uh, you, your hotel's two miles away, but your taxi driver charges you $25, you try to negotiate, and you hold your luggage hostage. I'm not bitter about that. Um, <laughs> my negotiation tactics were not very good. Um, life just happens. Look, the, the crazy, chaotic mess of life invades <laughs> our blissful plans quite often. And there's a lot of silly illustrations of that are ones we look back on, but there are also ones that are very painful and very hard. Um, maybe uh, you've been on, in the doctor's office and received the diagnosis that reads positive. Maybe that's you or a loved one. Maybe um, you are brokenhearted over the decisions uh, the loved one is making and you live with it just daily. Maybe you get the call and tragedy the worst has happened. These, the chaotic mess and brokenness of life invades our rest quite often. And you know, for me, um, you know, I've heard all the promises of God, right? Revelation 21, he'll wipe away all our tears from all our eyes. There'll be no crying, no pain, no sorrow. All of that will be removed. Isn't this the promise of the Christian life? So when will there finally be peace? You know, we just, we just spent time in the book of Romans looking at Romans 8, 28, saying all things will work together for the good of those who love God, right? That's, that's the promise of the Christian life. So why doesn't life feel good so often? We've been in this series uh, called Revealed where we're looking at these Old Testament characters and how their shadows of Jesus. And as we've kind of, I've enjoyed going through them and seeing this diorama that we've made of these different types and images of shadows that all lead us up to the Messiah, Jesus. And we believe that all of scripture is a unified story that leads to Jesus. And so a few weeks ago, if you remember, we um, dug into the story of Moses. And today we're going to pick up where that story leaves off because if you remember, Moses doesn't get to enter the promised land. Moses dies not getting to enter because of sin that he had committed, and in his place, Joshua succeeds him as ruler and leads the people into the promised land. It's a very high moment in the story of Israel. In fact, the priests carry the Ark of Co the Covenant into the Jordan River. The Jordan River stops flowing, and the Israelites pass on dry ground into the land of promise. Some of us, maybe that's where the sermon ends. 
Jesus is the true and better Joshua because he is the one who leads us into the promised land, and that is surely a part of it. But if we reduce Jesus just down to problem solver Jesus, what do we do with him when those problems come up? What do we do with him when those problems come up? You know, a lot of us would admit that we are a long way from utopia. (laughs) We're a long way from it. And as we come to find out, so are the Israelites, even after inheriting the promised land. So in the book of Joshua, if you just take a wide view, you zoom out, you look at the book, they actually enter the promised land in chapters three and four of the book of Joshua. You know how long the book of Joshua is? It's 24 chapters. So what happens after that? Well, in chapters five and six, the famous story of where the Israelites uh, conquer Jericho, right? They march around the walls while they're getting slushies thrown at them. Uh, That's a VeggieTales reference. Uh, uh, I don't think it's true to history. The walls came tumbling down, right? They experienced this great victory. And then what happens immediately after that? We hear the story of Achan and his family. Chapter six and seven, Achan steals some of the treasure, some of the wealth from Jericho that was supposed to be devoted to the treasury of the Lord. He takes it for himself and there is judgment. And you see within days of the Israelites entering the promised land, problems already start to arise. And so what do we learn? What do we learn just from that broad overview of the first few chapters of Joshua? It's this, that the problem with the promised land is that the promised land still comes with problems. The problem with the promised land is that the promised land still comes with problems. You know what? The story of Israel continues past them entering the promised land, and with it, a whole bunch of problems. We'll see Israel's unfaithfulness on display over and over and over again, and we'll see Israel's enemies creep in on them over and over and over again. You ever bought a new house? I can still remember the day we bought our house back in 2017. Uh, I can actually pull up the same pictures that were there when we bought the house because we haven't put new ones up there. Yeah, on Zillow or Realtor.com and you look through it and actually kind of fun. I I peeked through them recently. It's fun to like look at what the house looked like when we bought it. And I remember feeling like the richest man alive the day we bought our house. We have a picture of me holding my wife in my arms outside our front door like a princess, like a prince and princess entering their castle for the first time. And uh, uh, I remember feeling like the richest man alive. And then not even the first day in owning the house, I start realizing, oh, this has its own problems too. I remember they they put the TV in the contract with the house. So cool, it's like a 55-inch TV. It's like, this is awesome. So uh, it's basically free. It came with the house, right? so we, so the, you know, day one or two, I can't get the TV to turn on. Like, what the heck? Did they leave us with a broken TV and put it in the contract to fool us? Well, it turns out the TV's just fine, but there's a light switch on an opposite wall that controls the entire circuit for like a quarter of the, the house. And I just had no idea. You know, we have all those quirks, but for me it was like, oh, wow. Kind of that promised land reality started shattering pretty quickly. And then pipes would burst, our washing machine broke, mold grew, all sorts of problems. And then I just created problems. I try and fix problems, but I create more. I don't know if anybody else can relate. We liken life in Jesus to the promised land. We find that even life in Jesus comes with its problems. So we're going to look today at the life and leadership of Joshua and discover some lessons that might be helpful to us today as we encounter problems in the promised land. And these lessons, uh, they're not silver bullets. Um, In fact, uh, they're just shadows. They're a means to an end that ultimately lead us to 
Jesus, who is the true and better Joshua. So uh, the first one, when we encounter problems in the promised land, remember, remember. Story of Israel, as they enter the promised land, right, they uh, get to cross on dry ground through the Jordan River. It's a monumental high moment for the people of Israel. And so uh, God actually gives the Israelites a command through Joshua uh, to build a memorial. So I want to read a little bit of this together. Joshua 4, verses 5 through 7. These are God's commands to Joshua to give to the people of Israel. Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. You know, it's like God is saying to the people, I know what's ahead and I know your hearts. And the Israelites were so famously a people of promise forgetfulness, right? You know, famously, they cross through the Red Sea and it swallows the Egyptian army behind them. And then days later, they complain, we'd rather go back to slavery in Egypt. This manna, it tastes the same every single day, right? Famously forgetting God's faithfulness to them and you and I are not so different. We too are prone to promise forgetfulness. What do you think this is? What do you think this is? There's a quote from Brendan Manning I, I came across a few weeks ago, I think is insightful. He says, perhaps for most of us, the frenetic pace of life and the immediate claims of the present moment leave no time except for fleeting reflections at funerals to contemplate seriously where we came from and where we are going. You know, it's easy to forget not just what God's done and who he is, but who we are in him. And oftentimes, you know, I think it's true that just as we get caught up in the pace of life, you know, sometimes contemplating God deeply, remembering what he's done for us, it doesn't pay the bills next week. And so just the, the pace of life can consume us that we miss Remembering who God is, what he's done, and who we are in him. About 10 years ago, in 2014, I took a trip to Israel. Um, had an amazing time. It was such a formative uh, time for me. I was there for nine weeks and uh, got to see the sights that I had read about my whole life. And uh, some of them should be scrolling up on the screen, you'll get to see me the places I got to visit. These were pictures that uh, I wish I could say I took. Actually, I took this one, but uh, most of them are higher quality with a buddy's better camera than mine. But um, got to see these famous places of Israel. I got to go to Jericho, places that we're talking about today, and see uh, the history here and what God had done here. And I was seeing it with my own eyes. It was such a formative time in my life. I wanted to have something just a, a, as a souvenir or trinket or a memorial to remember what God had done in my life there. And so, I, you know, as I was walking through the uh, marketplaces of Jerusalem, I found these little hand-carved uh, lion and lamb um, little trinkets made out of olive wood um, and made in Bethlehem. And so for me, this sits on my desk um, at work here, and, uh, you know, sometimes I gloss over it. But every now and then, I look at it and I remember what God did in my heart and what a formative time that was for me. 
That was formative too. <clears throat> what helps you remember? What helps you remember? Now, uh, uh, maybe it's not a physical item. Maybe it's a, a discipline or a habit that you've cultivated in your life to pay attention to who God is, what he's done, who you are in him. Some other ways, I, I, I'll try and do this. I'm trying to get better. I'm working this out. By no means perfected it. Um, but each week, I try and take a few hours. I slow down my pace, and I just reflect on what God's doing. And so I have two documents on my computer. One's called my weekly inventory journal, where I just write a few paragraphs. And I've never been good at journaling, and it's not really for anybody else to see. It's just to reflect on what God's doing, good, bad, and ugly. Another document I have is, uh, I just call it prayers and poems. And in that, I'll just, as I, after I write my journal, I'll take a few minutes and just write down, I'll slow down and write a prayer or a poem. The Advent prayer I prayed this morning was one of them that I had written in the past. Prayer and a poem just to reflect on what God's doing, to be, communicate where my soul and heart are at before him. And those disciplines have helped me to remember when it's easy to forget. And so oftentimes I'll go back and read where I was three, four, six months ago. And um, it's interesting to see the journey, but what I, as I do that, I see God's faithfulness in it. See, you know, these may be among things you do, they may not be, and that's okay. Um, if you don't have anything that helps you remember, I just wanna give you maybe two questions to ask to help you as if you wanna cultivate a habit of remembering. First would be, uh, where have I seen God's kindness? Just maybe take a break each week, take a few minutes and pay attention. Where have I seen God's kindness? Write it down. Maybe it's just a sentence, a few words. Or where have I seen God's deliverance? You could also put faithfulness in there. Another way that might work, and I, I, there's a, I did a Bible study with a group of men every Wednesday morning this past semester, and we would take the first few minutes of that Bible study in silent prayer, and we would do the prayer of examine, which is an, it's kind of an ancient practice that Christians have done for a long time, where you just, you, you kind of review your day or your week with God. All the good, all the bad, what, what were high moments, what were low moments, and you just invite God into it, asking that he would make the good and the bad both a pathway to peace for us. These are just simple ways that we can cultivate the practice of remembering. What's neat, right? This sermon is not about Joshua and it's not about us. This sermon is about Jesus, the true and better. And what he does is bring our memory into vivid clarity and reality. Paul picks up on this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll read this, starting in verse 13. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Jesus is the one who reveals all the shadows of the past. Even Moses and Joshua, as good of leaders as they were, they operated within an old covenant system. 
that merely shadowed what was to come. Christ is the substance of that shadow. That's what this whole series is about. And this text, I love it, it says, in Christ as we contemplate, as we behold his glory, we are transformed into his image. As we come to him by faith, contemplating and beholding who he is, we are made more like him. Says Paul in 2 Corinthians. Something dearly and deeply important, friends, that wakes us up to reality who God is and who we are, as we remember and contemplate our God. Second lesson for us as we encounter problems in the promised land first, we remember. Second, renew. We renew. You know, the remaining chapters of the book of Joshua. Um, they're quite interesting, right? So 8 through 12, so we, you know, if 7 is where Achan's sin leaves off, 8 through 12 are, are a pattern of conquest where the Israelites, God gives the Israelites victory so that they can actually claim the prom, promised land as their own. But then chapters 13 through 22, so the majority of the book of Joshua, is actually pretty boring to us if we were to read it today because we don't understand a lot of the terms and what's going on there. But for the people then, um, this was exciting because it is the division and the allotment of the promised land to the 12 tribes of Israel. Like, I would be so giddy to see what land we got. Do we get the mountains? Do we get the ocean? Do we get the rivers? What, what, part, of, what part of the land do we get? Uh, who, you know, and some are stuck with the desert, right? Sorry, whoever that was. Um, but it's neat, because at the end of the book of Joshua, right, end of the book, uh, he brings all of Israel back together at Shechem. Now, if you remember from a few weeks ago, Matt preached a sermon on Abraham, and he highlighted the importance of Shechem. And this is a place in scripture where oftentimes human failure meets God's faithfulness. And it's here of all places that Joshua gathers the people of Israel and he renews the covenant, he renews their relationship to God. Um, I wanna read Joshua 24, 14, and 15 with you. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshiped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. We, our family used to have this, uh, a little plaque with this passage uh, up in our kitchen, so it kind of strikes me with, with significant meaning. Um, but it's here at Shechem, the place of Israel's historical failure, that Joshua gathers the people of Israel and renews their relationship to God. You know, I used to kind of uh, just laugh at, at people who would go through these um, marriage vow renewals, right? So after being married so long, they would do a vow renewal. I used to laugh at it maybe as an excuse to dress up and throw a party. I don't know. I just thought it was silly. I was like, did the first one not count or what? Um, and, um, but as I actually approached it with a little more curiosity and started asking, you know, just why? I'm just curious. Um, I found that oftentimes people would do these renewals, couples would do these vow renewals after a trying time in their family and their relationship's life. And so it was kind of a stake in the ground that said, we're one. We're together again. We haven't acted like it, but we're here and together again. And what a beautiful picture. I think that's what Joshua's doing here here at Shechem. And I don't think it's entirely inappropriate for us to do this with God every now and then. 
And I'm not saying they have to be spiritual mountaintops, come to the altar, rededicate your life type moments. Um, But God wants our hearts. He wants our devotion. And again, not necessarily in, in big ways. You know, I mentioned that my family has been practicing Sabbath. For us, this has been something that, it's been a part of something that we've built that we call a rule of life. Um, that word rule may uh, have an a icky connotation to you, so maybe think of it as a way of life. What is, essentially what it is, it's a, it's a way to discipline ourselves towards deeper love of God, is what it is. It's, it's what a diet or exercise plan is to health uh, as the, it, it's that for spiritual health. And so in this, uh, you know, basically what it is, is it's not legalism or law keeping, it's us marking out our lives and saying, God, I want to live my life in a way where my deepest desires are in line with your deepest transformation for me. And so we discipline ourselves towards love. And so I have just a list of disciplines that I try and do daily, if not weekly, um, and practice uh, my relationship to God. And Sabbath is one of them. As we discipline ourselves in connecting to and abiding in the one we love. Well, Jesus here is the true and better Joshua because he not only renews the covenant, he remakes the covenant. Patrick read this verse last week in his sermon on Jeremiah, but I want to read it again because it's so important um, as Jesus institutes the new covenant. This is Hebrews 8, 6 through 8. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. Since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. The covenant in Christ is remade. Perhaps the invitation you are hearing today is come back. Come back. Renew the covenant where you have been unfaithful. Joshua does this at the very place of Israel's unfaithfulness. But you know what? The place where our unfaithfulness is on display is the place where Jesus' faithfulness is most on display. He is brightest in our darkness. So bring that to him. The good, the bad, and the ugly, because it's not dependent on your behavior, because God has completed the work in his son Jesus, and he loves you, and he just wants your heart. So come back. When we encounter problems in the promised land, we remember we renew, and finally, we rest. Yes, three points, all starting with the same letter. You're welcome, or maybe you're just rolling your eyes. We just find a way, don't we, us preachers? <clears throat> you know, in all of Joshua's success as a leader, the one thing that he could never accomplish was to bring true peace to the problems that kept popping up in the promised land. And he did a darn good job, too, uh, one of the closing reflections in the book of Joshua says this. this is Joshua 21, 44. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their ancestors. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hands. And Joshua 
dies and leaves behind a great legacy, a faithful leader. But the story of Israel continues. Because at the end of the book of Joshua begins the book of Judges. If you're familiar with the book of Judges, it was not a bright moment in the history of Israel. <laughs> you don't have to read very far into it to figure that out. The famous line for the book of Judges, right? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And after the book of Judges, right, time when there were no kings, Israel cries out for, the, for a king, so he gives them one in King Saul, and thus begins the United Kingdom period for Israel, which those leaders were deeply flawed. You can read about Saul and David and Solomon. And then the kingdom is divided into Israel and Judah, and almost none of those kings were good. Most of them were evil, wicked leaders. And then exile takes place, and the people of Israel are, are cast out of their own land. And then they get to come back eventually, but under Roman oppression by the time of Jesus. Problems just keep coming. Joshua, even Joshua, as good a leader as he was, couldn't lead them into true, lasting peace and rest. And so if there was ever a place where Jesus is the true and better Joshua, it is here. And actually, this is the only place in Hebrews where Joshua is mentioned. Hebrews chapter four, verse eight. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. You know, one day we are going to fully and finally experience the Sabbath rest of God. We'll get to behold it in all its glory and enjoy it. And there really will be no more tears or crying or pain anymore. But the author of Hebrews tells us we can strive to enter that rest even now. So my question for us is how and why do we miss it? I don't have a comprehensive list. I, I have some ideas or theories. Um, but there's a lot more that I can't mention but I think a big reason is that we don't really believe that God loves us like a good father. Maybe that comes from experiences with our own parents, fathers or father figures. Maybe that comes with experience for how we were taught to view God. Maybe you were raised in a high performance uh, environment where you were only as good as the right that you did. For whatever reason, we're not comfortable with God is a loving and kind father, and so we don't come to him. And because we're uncomfortable with him, part of the reason we're uncomfortable with him is because we're uncomfortable with ourselves. And so we don't love God the way that he wants us to, and we don't love ourselves the way that he loves us. We're uncomfortable being with him, we're uncomfortable with ourselves, and it ends up, resulting in this lack of belief in a good father who really loves us. I think maybe another reason is we've identified promised lands of shadows. What do I mean by that? You know, we can have a lot of promised lands of our own making. Uh, things that we just say, if I can just attain this, I'll be happy. And, and we don't, like, none of us, I don't think, would actually say that out loud, 
but most of us have it in, implicitly or in subtle ways in us. If I can just get this. And so maybe that for you is, is career-oriented or relationship-oriented. Maybe it has to do with your status uh, in, the, in the community, your reputation in your community. Maybe it has to do with uh, wealth that you build. Maybe it has to do with dreams about what your family will look like, how many kids you have, um, what they'll grow up to do and be and become. Um, maybe it's dreams about uh, leisure or retirement, clothing, cars, you name it. We ha- can make all these promised lands up, but they're just promised lands of shadow. And when we make promised lands out of shadow, we miss the substance. None of those things are bad. None of them are wrong or sinful in and of themselves. But if they become everything to us, if we put our worship and identity in them, we miss out on the substance. And then we come to find that all those promised lands of our own making only come with more problems. So in our restless fight to rid our promised land of problems, we miss the one thing, the one person who gives us rest in their midst. Uh, Ronald Rollheiser says of our frenetic pace, um, trying to keep up with demands of life, he says, and so we end up as good people, but as people who are not very deep, not bad, just busy, not immoral, just distracted, not lacking in soul, just preoccupied, not disdaining depth, just never doing the things to get us there. And when we make a promised land out of a shadow, this is what our life looks like. But if we make our promised land one of substance, who is Christ, we're willing to go deep and do the things that get us there. You know, missing out on rest means missing out on Jesus. And missing out on Jesus means missing out on rest. Bring up Sabbath again. Part of the reason my family has been trying to work out Sabbath in our own lives, and again, we've not perfected it by any means, Um, but we've realized that we find one another and we find Jesus again when we take the time to pay attention and we turn our face towards each other, make time for one another. And so we discipline ourselves. We strive, as one translation puts it, or as this translation, NIV puts it, we make every effort to enter that rest. I want to come back to Moses for a moment. If you remember how his story ends, right? God tells him to speak to a rock to provide water. He strikes a rock, something he had actually done, God had actually told him to do a time past, and he tried it again, and actually the, 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 the rock gave water, but he was disobedient, and for his disobedience, God disallows him for, from entering the promised land. And so what does he do? He takes Moses up to the top of Mount Nebo, and he says, look, See the promised land. Feels so cruel to me. I've always struggled with that story. You know, why would God say essentially to a toddler, look, but you can't touch? It just feels cruel. Feels like he's teasing him. But if we know anything about Moses, right? And scripture describes his relationship to God as one of being a friend. Whenever Moses had issues, he pushed back. But you can read all of Moses' story through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You can look through all these books and you don't ever see Moses push back about this issue. I've always struggled with that. I read a book uh, earlier this year that brought it up. It was a question I didn't even know was unanswered for me. Um, This is a book by Ruth Haley Barton. She has this incredible insight. It's a little bit lengthy of a quote, but I want you to follow me because it's worth it. 
Um, but she's talking specifically about this moment in Moses' life. She says, whatever letting go he had done in order to leave the house of Pharaoh to find God and himself in the wilderness prepared him for this final letting go. Settling down by the well in Midian and being content to be a soul in God's presence had prepared him to sit on the side of this mountain, content once again to be a soul in God's presence. He no longer needed any role or responsibility or task to define him. That sounds like freedom to me. All of his experiences of discerning and doing the will of God had brought him to the place where he knew down to the bottom of his being that the will of God was the best thing that could happen to him under any circumstances. Certainly, he had some sense that the terrible loneliness he had moved in and out of throughout his life was now finally going to be irrevocably eradicated because physical death was the final transition into that pure presence. Finally, there would be nothing standing between him and the lover of his soul. And I don't want you to miss what's next. And this is what I have come to see most clearly in the life of Moses. For Moses, the presence of God was the promised land. Next to that, everything else had already paled in significance, even entering the promised land. If you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. Jesus is our promised land. He is our promise and he is our promised land. Now where Joshua could only lead the people to a geographical point on earth, Jesus ushers us into the very presence of God. It is him that our souls long for. You know what makes heaven great? It's not the streets of gold, the big, big house, the big, big table, or big, big yard. It's the fact that you will dwell with Jesus again. And he is better than any blessing you could ever inherit. inherit. He's better than all of heaven and all of earth. He's better than all the things that money could buy. He is better than life itself because he is life himself. And he has given himself to you. He is our promised land. And so all these lessons of remembrance and renewal and rest, they're means to an end. And the end is Jesus, being in his presence. And that's what this whole series is about. All of the Old Testament, in fact, all of the New Testament, all of history points back to one person, and that's Jesus. There's this beautiful line near the end of Joshua, and it's actually repeated twice in the book. One is, is kind of a narration for the, the reader or the hearer, Another is an actual quotation that Joshua is speaking to the people of Israel. And uh, Joshua 21, 45, he says this. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Everyone was fulfilled. I want you to think back on Israel's story for a minute. What, what Joshua himself had seen, right? Slavery in Egypt. Exodus through the, lead, the Red Sea. The presence of God manifested in the, the pillar of fire and pillar of cloud. God working at Sinai in the tabernacle. 40 years of wandering. He's seen Israel uh, cower in fear of giants. And he's seen Israel conquer the land of giants. He's seen 
Israel crossed the Jordan on dry land. He's seen the falling of the walls of Jericho. He's seen the greed of Achan. He's seen the people settle in the land. If you recount the story, it's a story that's messy and complex. It's filled with triumphant victory and bitter defeat. In his declaration at the end of his life, not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel had failed. You know, Israel's is a complex story, and yours is too. And ours, as a church, as the church, is too. One of bitter defeats and triumphant victories. But I want you to just imagine yourself, the, the twilight of your life, and maybe you're near that. Maybe you have decades to go. Imagine yourself being able to declare these words. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Jacob, to Reagan, to Mary, to Bill, to our family. Not one of the Lord's good promises to me had failed. Every one was fulfilled. Messy and complex story, full of beauty and brokenness, but this is the inheritance for a life lived in Christ. This is the inheritance for a child of God. You'll have bitter defeats and triumphant victories, but at the end of it all, Jesus is our promise, and he is our promised land. And we will get eternal rest one day, but until then, like the, writers, like the writer of Hebrews says, we can strive to enter, we can make every effort to enter that rest today and we'll find life there. Will you pray with me? Father, you are good. In spite of all our unfaithfulness, in the very places where we have failed you worst, where our unfaithfulness is most on display, so too is the fidelity of Jesus. A faithful God, a faithful friend, a faithful brother, a faithful savior. So Father, we invite Jesus into all these places, all these cracks in our own hearts where brokenness lives. We invite Jesus into them, good, bad, and ugly, that we might experience his rest. And we give you our hearts as people who are so prone to wander, so prone to promise forgetfulness. Father, help us. <laughs> to make every effort to enter that rest, knowing that we'll taste the ultimate rest one day, but that we can experience it now together as followers of Jesus, as friends of God, and as a community of faith. Father, we praise you. To Jesus be all the glory, all the majesty, and all the praise.